Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. So today's teaching text comes from Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7, and then we'll also be reading from Romans 8, 22 to 25. Y'all can read with me in your minds. I'll read it out loud. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. And actually, even more than making it, I am very, very impressed with, like, the generosity liturgy that we're, like, actually memorizing. That's, like, the whole point of repetition over and over and over again. The monotony actually serves us well. So, uh, good morning. It's Advent season, and if you didn't know this, this is actually uh, the beginning of the church calendar. And so, the liturgical year actually begins today. It doesn't um, begin at, you know, the pinnacle of Easter. It doesn't begin at the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but the church calendar actually begins in the waiting. It sort of begins in the minutiae of the the day-to-day. I was thinking this week a lot about um, when I was a kid, and my parents would tell me to wait. And when you hear wait when you're a kid, that just means, like, not now, forever, go outside, go away, later, right? And I was thinking about waiting. It's like it's like when your, um, your favorite movie is coming out, you're at the movie theaters, you see the preview, and it's like coming, January 2025. You're like, That's, that doesn't help me at all, right? Or you, uh, you're on a flight, and the flight attendant says to you, okay, we're going we're gonna to land, get ready to land. And if like, you're going to JFK, you're going to be home in like three and a half hours, so congratulations, right? And so, um, waiting, that's the um, reality of Advent, learning to wait. And for some of us, waiting sounds very boring. And so what do we do is we rush. We bring the amusement to ourselves of Christmas when actually the invitation in this um, church season is to pause, to slow down, 
to let the joy and the celebration come, but to wait for it. I read a great piece in the New York Times this week. It was an op-ed called, Let the Children Get Bored Again. And um, the, the author spoke to the um, modern culture, cultural moment and how we optimize and maximize every moment for children. And this is what she says. When not being uber-parented, kids today are left to their own devices, their own digital devices, that is. Parents preparing for a long car ride or an airplane trip are like army officers plotting a complicated land maneuver. Which movies to load onto the iPad? Should we start a new family-friendly podcast? Is this an okay time to let kids play Fortnite until their brains melt into the back seat? And then get this. What did kids' parents do in the 70s when their kids were bored in the way back? Nothing. They'd let them breathe in gas fumes, torture their siblings, and since it was actually not for wearing, play with the broken seatbelt, all right? And so this is um, what we've done in our modern culture is we do not allow for boredom, meaning we don't allow for waiting. And we need to actually learn um, to wait. And for um, even in, in her article, she goes on to talk about how um, we should teach kids um, to, to be bored, to learn waiting so they aren't raised with a false expectation about what work and life actually bring to us, right? <laughs> We're going to taint them early. But what if instead of optimizing or um, entertaining in every moment, we actually learned to be present in the present moment? right? We chose to actually live like in the here and in the now, not trying to be on social media like somewhere else, right? That's what social media does to us. It actually tries uh, to allow us to live in a different time and in a different place with other people. But Advent is an invitation to slow down and to be present. And it's quite countercultural, I think, um, the church to live this way because everything is speeding up around us, right? Everything is coming faster, but Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so Christmas is coming. Christmas is the time where we celebrate the incarnation and the arrival of Jesus, God in the flesh. And so Advent is actually about preparing for that, posturing ourselves um, for Jesus, longing for Jesus. And it's actually, I was reading a ton of the the last couple weeks, thinking about what kind of waiting that we do at Advent. And there's actually three kinds of waiting that we do at Advent. The first is this, Jesus has already come in uh, human history in a time and in a specific place in the first century. And that's what the Christmas story is about. And so if, if we understand that to have happened, then what we actually do at Advent is we mirror the attitude of the Israelite people. And so we, we mirror their attitude in waiting and longing for a Messiah. That's why that Isaiah 9 passage becomes so important. This is written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And what does it say? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We're sitting in the darkness. We're in presently, we're in the darkness, but we're longing for the light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And so that's the first part. We mirror that. But there's another part. There's two more parts, actually. The next one is that we anticipate God coming again to make all things new. And in that sense, we live in a sort of perpetual advent. We're always waiting. Jesus, would you come back to do the restoration and the redemption of all things? And so Jesus is coming um, or sorry, Jesus has come, Jesus is coming, but I think, and I used to stop there, that's how we understand Advent, but I think there's another, um, maybe for us today in this sort of 2022 moment, there's another um, equally important way to look at Advent, which is that Jesus is in our midst by the Spirit, like Jesus is here and now, and he comes through, it's like, um, I think of like um, a sunny day, but you're standing in the shade of a tree, and a little bit of light pokes through the the tree. And like, that's how God is in our midst, in the here 
and in the now by his spirit. Here's what Henry Nouwen says. He says, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And so over the next four weeks, this Advent season, this is what we want to do. We want want to actually um, have that type of hope that God can be in our midst. And so our four weeks of Advent, today we're going to talk about hope being greater than despair. Week two, we're going to look at um, peace is greater than anxiety. Week three, joy is greater than sorrow. And then um, our Christmas service on May 18th is going to be love is greater than anything. And so that'll be our four weeks. And what I want to do today with this idea of hope um, being greater than despair, I want to kind of zoom out in the Bible. I want to look at um, like God in relationship to hope in this meta narrative. I want to do a little diagnostic with each other. Um, we, can, um, we can judge ourselves a little bit today through um, some, some charts. And then I want to give us some like tools for hope in this season and maybe it'd be a little bit practical. So um, if we want to understand Isaiah 9, we have to zoom out. All right, and this is what we have to do. I know this seems a little bit tedious, but we talk about this a lot here. Creation, decreation, and recreation. This is the sort of narrative that we live in. In the Bible, um, it begins in the garden. And um, it begins with the main character, God, creating. In, in the Latin, is ex nihilo, means God creates out of nothing. All right? And Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth and the earth. And so if you open your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, what you're actually finding is God's um, design and intention for humanity. It's like this, this is what God made, this is what he longs for us to see in, in this piece of creation. This is God's design and intention. And what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is um, you see right relationship between God and, and his creation, but also his creation with each other. And you just let this sink in. Like when you open your Bible, this is, Genesis 1 and 2 is so important. God's design and intention for humanity, human flourishing. Is, is there loneliness in the garden? There's no loneliness in the garden. There's no gossip in the garden. There's no anxiety or depression in the garden. Trauma, racism don't exist in the garden. Mass shootings, war violence, none of that in the garden. Because in the garden, what you have is God's design and intention, right? That's why death and um, betrayal and despair actually feel as though injustices to us because we were actually created for perfection and so when we come up against um, sinful realities of the world we say that feels wrong to me there's something in us innately that says there's something wrong it's because we were actually designed for perfection we weren't designed for the second part that we get into i always hate when people say well you know everything happens for a reason and i just like open like the latest news app and be like well explain this to me then like if everything happens for a reason like explain this and i I think the thing is is i'm I'm not saying that god can't make good from these things or god is not actually in the business of redeeming moments like this but if we actually understand genesis 1 what we actually find is that suffering and evil and pain are actually not a part of god's intention and so that's why they feel so wrong to us because it's not the the world in which god designed for us but the reality is is we do feel those things which moves us to the second part, which is decreation, right? Or, or maybe the, the, an, another way to understand it is sin, right? We know there's a dissonance between the goodness that we desire and the disorder we experience. The, the, the goodness we desire and the disorder we experience and what, what, what becomes our question? God, how could you do this, right? Like, I don't, I don't mean to be crass. 100% of us in this room are going to die, but that still feels wrong to us, right? 
that still feels like, like, like there's something wrong about that. And the answer is, there is something wrong with it. God didn't design us in that way. And so in the story of decreation in Genesis chapter 3, what we actually begin to feel is the, the pain and the burden and the shame that, and the consequences that sin brings to our lives. Uh, Martin Luther, um, the great reformer, um, described sin as a life turn inwardly on itself. I love this cover from the New Yorker. If you've been around here, you've seen this before. Um, and Martin Luther said that sin is a life turn inwardly on itself. Isn't that a great modern picture of a life turned inwardly on itself? I'll leave that there for you to um, judge yourself about your screen time. But what does he say? He says, our nature, by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gift of God towards itself and enjoys them, but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, curvedly I don't even know that's a word, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. What does it mean? For, for Luther, sin is not just breaking God's law, but it's actually rejecting God and substituting the self, right? It, it, it's, it's looking at the world and saying, everything is about me. It's taking all the good gifts of God that are, 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 we should accept and give back, but we take them on so selfishly, hence the picture. This is a, this is a picture of decreation, right? And if you have eight billion people on the planet inwardly caring only about themselves, what do you get? You get decreation. People are always like, you know, like, New York is so crazy, like, Manhattan's so crazy, and I'm like, what did you expect when you put a lot of people on an island, right? This is an island, right? Consumed with themselves, and, and the truth is, is what you get when that happens is you get despair. You, you, you get given over to despair, and so maybe the important point here is that, um, God created us to live in creation, right? We live in creation, but it's a decreation. That's our context. This is where we live our lives from. We don't live our lives from Genesis 1 and 2. We, we live in the Genesis 3 world. But the good news is we're not done, right? We, we move to recreation. And the Christian story is one that I just told you ends in hope, right? God coming back to make all things new through the person of Jesus. And when Jesus came, basically what, what happened when Jesus came is he, he was giving us a picture. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. When the kingdom of God is established on earth as it, as it is in heaven, it's going to look like what happened when Jesus was walking around in the gospels, calling people to follow him, teaching, exercising demons, healing the sick, preaching, having compassion on the socially outcast, forgiving sins. And what you got when Jesus was here was like the full-on aspects of the kingdom of God and through the church, hopefully, we get pictures, little glimmers of what the kingdom of God is like so that we can have sort of this Advent life where God shows up in our midst. And I thought this week, I thought, what's like a good headline? And pastors Google weird stuff like stories of despair. Um, so like I'm, I'm like Googling stuff and I'm like, this is so sad. Like, but I didn't even need to do that this week because I, I realized we know. We, we, we know stories of despair because we live inside of them, right? We have friends and family that we say, I, I hope that never happens to me, right? And, and in the story of creation and decreation and recreation, this um, Isaiah 9 is so beautiful. A light has shined in the darkness. And it answers some of the biggest questions that we have, right? Why is there beauty and goodness? What, what are we here to do? Why, why was I created? And creation is the answer. You were created by God, for God, to 
co-create and make beauty in this world with God? What's gone wrong? Why, why are things not always good? Decreation, sin, right? We have a natural propensity to think about ourselves before we think about others. What can make things right again? Recreation. Jesus came to make things right by his incarnation and the restoration of all things, right? And, and hopefully, like I said, the church is listening to God and bringing about elements of the kingdom. Uh, one theologian said it this way. He said, Christianity inserts a new option for dealing with time, one based on the pouring out of the Spirit, the coming of the kingdom of God, and the resurrection. Jesus and the early church taught that the future has invaded the present and determines how the present is lived. Christians live in the present of the future, right? So now I'm just getting confused, like we're like in the movie Inception here. Um, we, we're in the present and decreation. We're longing for God to make all things new. But Advent means in that waiting that God comes in the here and in the now. And so guess what we get to do? We get to live in the presence of the future. Now, that's a lot of like theological stuff, but really what that means is that there's hope today. Like there's hope in the here and the now. And so what we actually need to do is for each of us in the room, we need to say, what does that look like for me? Like, how does, how does hope begin to manifest in my life? And this Romans passage is so beautiful because it looks like Paul is just giving us sort of um, some, like, pithy statements about how to have hope, but he's actually, actually um, telling us how to do it, like how to get the hope that we so long for. So here's what Romans 8, 18 says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So, half a glass half full, glass half empty kind of person, you're going to emphasize uh, one of two things in this passage, right? Suffering, like it's coming to you, right? Or are you, are you emphasizing worth comparing with the glory? Same thing, Jesus does the same thing here. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, you'll have trials. Sorry, it's going to happen, Jesus is saying, but then maybe we only emphasize this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Bible, when you read it, is painfully, painfully, painfully realistic about suffering. It, it, it just is. It, it, Jesus' own life is a, is a life of suffering. So how do we understand hope in a world of despair? What's our relationship to it? Um, maybe you think of it like this. Here's a, here's a chart. Um, amount of hope, amount of time, very big uh, graphics here. Um, what if... You have a lot of hope, right? You're an optimistic person and you say, my glass is always half full, but you never live in reality, right? There's zero reality. The un unreality is somewhere in there. I didn't, I didn't know how to like represent this the best way, so this is what you get. Maybe it would be down on the bottom, okay? If you do like charts and stuff, come see me after. We'll, we'll work on it together for next time. And so this person, if this is you, you would be filled with hope, but you don't live in reality. Filled with hope, but you don't live in reality. Um, if this is you, I, I, maybe I just like push on you just a little bit. Christmas started on Halloween, right? Like this is, this is the life that you live. It's like, there you go. Go, Katie. And so this person also lives in denial, okay? So that's what you should, you should notice, notice here. I, I, don't, I don't think I would even call this hope. I would call this a sort of blind optimism. This person hasn't um, dealt with the reality of the world, right? You take a verse like, in this world you will have tribulations, but what do you hear? But take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and I, I think that ultimately we should get there, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but they only emphasize that and never realize that in this world you will have trouble. 
I, I, I can actually be this way. I make fun of Katie, but actually, I can actually do this sometimes. I can, I can over-positive, right? Um, and not, not, not only uh, selfishly, but like, let's just, it's, it's going to be okay for the other person, right? Like, how can I be a pastor and like come in and just, just live in reality? Like, I, I want to offer some hope. I don't want other people to have to face the harsh realities of the world, but in my own optimism, it can actually become a form of escapism, right? Not dealing with it. Okay, so that's bad. This is worse, though, all right? Worse than denial is the complete absence of hope. Maybe this is the pendulum swinging to the other side. No hope whatsoever, and then reality can, you know, be as harsh as you, you want it to be. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter there. I just kind of left it at the bottom. There's no hope, right? And when there's no hope, but you're living in reality, what you get is despair. And some of you at Christmas, actually, this is the thing that you need to call out in yourself. You need to say, I, I, I have a lot of reality, but I don't know what my hope is. I don't know where, where to get my hope. I don't know what to put it in. And this person lives in decreation, um, but because of their own sin or because of um, the reality of other people's sin falling on them, the hope is completely absent, right? We believe in creation, but decreation is like the only thing they can see. And, and, and I'm gonna be honest, like how unfair is life? Life is completely unfair, right? That, that other people's mess, sin falls on us. But Christianity comes along, Jesus comes along, and he offers a new way to, to, to look at hope. Um, and, and here's the truth I want to get to today, is that hope is greater than despair. So maybe this is what, I don't know, maybe it looks something like this. Hope is greater than despair, right? The red line being hope, the other line being reality. And he, here's the thing, is sometimes, let's just be honest, despair seems like it's winning, right? Life seems like it's winning, hopelessness feels like it's winning and so hope probably looks a little bit more like this right it's like i have hope i don't have hope i, ha I have hope i don't have hope right and at advent you, you can come here today and say i just have to get hope um, or i just have to be faithful in waiting for jesus wrong wrong what we actually come to believe at, at advent is jesus is coming Jesus is coming. He, Jesus came, and that's actually the thing that grades me. Jesus already came, and that's what makes me um, already faithful, right? You and I are going to waver in our faithfulness, but God doesn't waver in his faithfulness. And so actually what happens is the, as, as sort of these, these meet, maybe I should have drawn that line, um, that thing of reality to say, like, to, to bring it down to the bottom, to say God offers ultimate hope in the end, and so those things couldn't be further apart. Does despair win? Some days it feels like it, but ultimately it doesn't. So here's what Paul says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this is a very Advent passage, right? For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, can, he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. So here's what I want to do. I just want to look at three things in this passage, and then we'll, we'll wrap up today, about some like tangible ways to like get what I'm talking about. And the first one is going to sound crazy, but hope can come from thinking. Hope can come from thinking. Here's what Paul says earlier in this Romans passage. He says, for I consider that the sufferings 
of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Uh, the word there, for I considered in the Greek is lagizomai. It means um, I think, I, I, I consider, I, I count up. Um, it actually can even mean like I reason with myself. Most of the time when we're going through um, trials or hardship or stress, we're like, I need a vacation, I need a massage, like I need an escape, right? This is like how I deal with this present moment. Paul is actually challenging us to, to pause and to think. And I know this sounds so strange. He's saying, remind yourself, consider what I've been talking about. Think up who you are and what God thinks about you. Take stock of who you are and the greatness that lies ahead for you. And that's where joy begins to um, well up. You might say, well, Russell, I'm not actually really interested in, like, theology, doctrine, like, thinking. And I'd say, well, no, 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 pause for a second, right? I know you need comfort, not doctrine, right? But if you think about it, what if this thing we're talking about at Christmas is true? What if, what if Jesus really did come, was born of a virgin, um, really did come into time and place, and then lived a perfect life, endured infinite suffering for you, so that you and I one day could have every tear wiped from our eyes. What if hope really did come in the person of Jesus? And even further than that, what if Jesus is actually active by his spirit in the here and now? That Advent idea, right? What are you doing? Preaching the gospel to yourself, right? You're telling yourself the truth so that you can live them out, right? Like we, we have to trick ourselves sometimes into believing the truth. We have to tell, speak the truth to ourselves over and over and over again so that we can believe it. And if, you, if you're someone that's like, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm lacking in hope, maybe it's, not, it's because you're not thinking. You're not thinking about the good news of the gospel. Hope comes from thinking, but it doesn't just come from that. I like this. Hope comes from waiting. This sounds like a complete cop-out. Like, this is the, the cop-out preacher point. Hope comes from waiting. I know you're suffering now, but just wait, right? Look what Paul says. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. I like what the NLT says. It says, but if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So when I was a kid, my, um, my parents actually lived 20 miles apart from each other, divorced parents. And uh, my sister and I, when we were little, we always hated when we'd get on the freeway because we knew we were going to be in the car for a long time if we got on the freeway. And we'd be stuck there. And what did our parents say? Be patient. And I think for many of us, when we think about the word patience, we actually equate it to the idea of being powerless, right? I, 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 I just have to be completely um, dependent and passive in this scenario. That's kind of the idea that I get with this idea of patience because someone came along and, and maybe even in a sort of belittling or uh, offending way said, just be patient. Kind of what Paul is saying, but not. He actually uses a word here in the Greek that translates as like fortitude or endurance. And he's saying, do, do, do you have the endurance? Like, do you have the ability to sit in the present moment knowing that sufferings are coming your way, pain is coming your way, but to bear with it, right? To enter into the thick of life fully, to see and to touch and to hear and to smell the reality of our world, but to know that there's something outside of yourself that can um, hope. And so patience is actually... Um, we don't think of it this way. We think of it more passively. It's a, patience is an action. Patience is the thick, concrete action of a person who actually has hope inside of them. And so hope comes from thinking. Hope comes from waiting. And then here's the ultimate thing, is that 
hope comes from presence, right? Lots of people believe in God, but do we actually believe that God is at work or can work in, in the present moment? Not just that um, he came in the past and he's coming in the future, but that, he's, that, that God is actually active and moving in the present. Uh, this, this sounds so crazy. A week and a half ago, um, I was meeting with um, our other pastor, Brandon, and we were wrapping up, and Brandon's like, Russell, can I, um, can I pray for you? And I was like, actually, yes. I'm actually going to the dentist right now, and it, like, freaks me out, like, makes me super anxious. And so a couple years ago, I was at the dentist, and in my chart, they, like, left me there with my chart, and it says, like, severe dental anxiety, please get help with x-ray. Because I just, I just gag when they put the, like, x-ray thing in my mouth. And so, which they never get help, which is frustrating, but... Um, but hey, I, I always tell them like, hey, I'm not very good at this. I've thrown up at the dentist. It was Cocoa Puffs, but like, it's fine. All right. It was a long time ago. And so Brandon was amazing. Brandon took me so seriously. And he was like, yeah, man, like, let me just pray for that right now. And I was like, I was like, not joking, but he took me so seriously. He's like, I pray that, that God's presence would be with you. And then he prayed that I would unlearn my fear and anxiety and give me a new view of the dentist. This is legit what he prayed in the office. It was like, okay, I don't, I don't really know what to do this. I made it through my x-rays. I gagged one time. And the, yes, thank you. Thank you, Abby. I appreciate these claps. I need them. Um, and like, I don't know. Maybe she was amazing. Maybe it was like my day, whatever. But I'm just going to choose to believe that it was like, a prayer that worked, that God was actually present in my life, and like the, the smallest thing you could ever imagine, like, could I make it through the dentist by like not even getting those x-rays? Sure. Um, but I think this is just small ways to see, could God be present in your life at the dentist? Then God can probably be present in your life in your family breakdown, or can be present in your life at the job that you hate, or what, whatever it is. And so this is what I hope for us this, this Advent season, that we wouldn't rush that we wouldn't be so quick to bring, um, to bring the celebration. Yes, we can have joy, right? But let's long for Jesus in the present of our lives, to be um, like Henry Nouwen says, to have our eyes open, right? To, to see and to hear that God is in our midst so that we can be like Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so let's do this together. Um, let's be hopeful uh, together. We've actually um, prepared a scripture reading guide um, for the Advent season. Um, the readings actually begin today as Advent begins today. Um, and I would say emphasis on the word guide, right? A guide is something that takes you on a journey. This is not a task. This is not homework. This is not a way of accomplishing anything. The guide is put together as a way of being present with God so that we could be in his word and that we could be praying um, and inviting Jesus, or I should say, so that we can be joining Jesus in his story that he's telling. And so if you want that guide, it's on our website. It's on the resources page um, tab. It's the top thing up there. Um, it is so simple. It could take you five minutes. It could take you 30 minutes. It could take you an hour, I guess. Um, but the movements of the guide are to surrender. There's some pre-written prayers there for you. Um, to sit in silence and listen is the second step. 
Um, meditate is the third, and then the last one is to um, respond. And let me say this, I'll say this every week um, going forward. If you get behind, no problem. If you want to double up, great. If you want to, you know, do the day that's at hand, awesome. Don't do it out of duty. Let's do it out of love, all right? So here's the Advent. Um, here's my um, sermon in, a, uh, in two sentences. Jesus came, incarnation. Jesus is coming, and Jesus is in our midst by his spirit. That's Advent, all right? Let's pray. And so, Father, we love you, and help us wait. Help us, help us endure some boredom. Help us not seek out um, amusement. Help us not seek out escapes to the reality of this world, but help us live in the reality of this world, knowing that you did come and you will come again. God, I pray um, for us as a church um, that that would be our longing to see you move in our midst, that we wouldn't take steps in our own power, but by your spirit, we would be perfectly in step with your spirit. And so, God, I pray for those in the room this morning that need hope. God, would you be our hope? Would you be the object of our hope? Would you be the end to our hope? Would you be the thing that roots us and establishes us? And as we move to the communion table now, may it be a tangible reminder of your love poured out for us. As we take the cup, which represents the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and as we take um, the, the bread, may it be a reminder of your body broken for us. What greater hope can we have but this sacrifice? And so God, meet us here by your grace as we sing to you, as we partake of the communion elements. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.